The body of the dragon concentrates energy in its sinuous curves and coils and uncoils to move along more quickly. It is a symbol of all the potential with which form can be charged, a potential that never ceases to be actualized. The dragon now lurks in watery depths, now streaks aloft to the highest heavens, and its very gait is a continuous undulation. The dragon in Chinese is a very old mythical or real animal, we don't know. I mean, possibly, you know, there were remnants of Ice Age giant reptiles that inspired people to think about what um, these animals were. The ancient writing for the dragon is made up of two elements. One is the character for snake, and the other is the character for king. It is the king of the scaly creatures, and the scaly reptiles are associated with water. The dragon lives in water, although it may rise up into the sky where it resides in the clouds and produces rain. Finally, merging with the clouds and the mists, the dragon's impetus makes the surrounding world vibrate. It is the very image of an energy that diffuses itself through space, intensifying its environment and enriching itself by that aura. The Chinese use the word dragon for topography, for sources of energy. So mountains, for instance, are dragons. Watercourses are dragons. It catches the, the idea of Chinese science, which is not elemental like Greek science, ancient Greek science. There's a continuum of change. And the, the Chinese see the topography, mountains, rivers, as a continuum of change. The Chinese dragon is to do, unlike some other mythical creatures, do it, I think, with impartiality and a kind of objective, vast perspective on life, you know, that life and death are both happening all at once and, and a kind of aspect of each other. And that the dragon would be a sort of serenity about watching everything rise and fall. I'm Jocelyn Che. Uh, that surname is Chinese. I married a Chinese man. And uh, most of my career has been in the diplomatic and trade aspects of government relations with China. And I've probably spent half my life in the, what we call the Far East, it should be the near north. <laughs> and uh, it might surprise you to know that um, not everybody in China thinks that dragons are mythical animals. My mother-in-law, who was a very dear lady, lived in North China, told me once that she herself had seen a dragon called a scaly dragon or a jiaolong. And she told me that in the area where she was living in the countryside, engineers came and decided they were going to dam the river. And in order to create the dam, they dropped explosives into the riverbed. And that created a great um, blast of water and rocks that flew up into the air. And she and all the people who lived in the area actually saw the dragon, which had been lying undisturbed in the bed of the river, rise up and fly up to the sky. And after that, there were droughts in the area and the whole ecology of the area was damaged. The dragon is a water spirit. The dragon lives in the river and the dragon produces rain. Therefore, the proper relationship with the dragon is very important in Chinese culture. So the proper relationship with the dragon is to respect the land. Is that part of it? Yes, it definitely is. And there's also the social relationship is very important to Chinese civilization, that people should behave in a harmonious way and respectful way to each other. So if a family is properly regulated, the relations between parents and children, the relationships between villagers, the relationships of local officials to the local community, and the relationship of the emperor in the old days or the central government 
to the whole people of China, these form a harmonious whole. And these are also very important because they, in a sense, mirror the relationship between heavenly spirits and between heaven and earth. My name is Michael Payton, Dr. Michael Payton from the University of Sydney. I became interested in dragons in terms of translating for my honours degree texts on feng shui, the Chinese idea of the energy of the land. I realised early into the translations that the Chinese used the word dragon for topography, for sources of energy. And one of the texts that I translated was the Water Dragon Classic, which is a late Ming dynasty around 1600, which is, uses the idea of water as the dragon, water as the source of energy. I lived in Kuma. I went to high school in Kuma, and, and mountains started to really interest me. So I ended up studying geology. I've worked as a geologist. And in a way, later on when I studied Chinese, the whole idea of, of Chinese geology, geography really interested me, and therefore my interest in feng shui. That feng shui is not what Women's Weekly, Women's Day says it is. It's not necessarily where you put your bed or your desk. It's much more the um, idea of the energy of the land in relation to mountains and rivers. There are three great rivers in China, the Yellow River, the Yangtze River, and the Pearl River in the south. And the Chinese civilization grew up in the cultivated areas that were watered by the rivers. The Chinese were some of the first people in the world to develop irrigation. And the mythical founder of the Chinese nation was the Emperor Yu, who tamed the rivers, who learnt how to divert water for its use. And of course, if there's too much water causing floods, that will be a disaster for the people. If there's not enough water, there are droughts, and that's also a different kind of disaster. So the use and regulation of water is very important. The earliest text, actually, to use the word feng shui, uh, earliest existing text, is the Book of Burial. Now, the cosmology of the Book of Burial is the shape of the land, yin and yang, and the flow of qi in relation to that. The whole idea of qi in terms of this fertility energy of the land is to accumulate it, to accumulate vital energy, sheng qi, as it's called. The whole structural form of feng shui in terms of burial, because it actually it originally started with where people lived, but then moved into because of Chinese ancestors, the worship, where you bury people. But the, the relationship of that, it's to do with fertility. The flow of qi in the land, in terms of qi flowing along ridge lines, flows down to the ground, and you pick a spot which is, has meandering water, shui, and is blocked from the wind. So there's an accumulation of topsoil. So you bury someone or you live in a place that is really fertile. In the burial sense, the idea is that you bury your ancestors in a place where their spirit will be nourished. And once their spirit is nourished by this fertility, then they help their descendants go through the trials of life. There's a concept called chung, which is to clash or dash against. So you need to be careful not to have too much chi flowing really quickly. Sort of the, the nose and the eyes of a dragon tend to be a better place as compared to other parts of the dragon. You would never, for instance, put uh, a house or a grave in a way on a ridge line because there is too much energy there. Energy in the sense of chi. <laughs> The dragon is a constantly evolving creature with no fixed form. It can never be immobilized or penned in, never grasped. It symbolizes a dynamism, never visible in concrete form and thus unfathomable. I'm John Tarrant and I'm, by trade, I'm a, a Zen teacher and also I have a PhD in psychology and so I did it for about 20 years. I did a practice in Jungian dream work, but I'm mainly interested in the transformation of consciousness that comes through Zen koans and, and meditation. 
And mythically, dragons are part of that tradition. In the koan lines of Zen, often dragon is a name that's passed down. And because I'm from the south, because I'm originally from Tasmania, my teaching name was Southern Dragon, referring not so much to the European dragon, but more to the Asian dragon, which is a flying creature and to do with water and clouds, and uh, in some way an expression of eternity. For me, the Chinese dragon is to do, unlike some other mythical creatures, do I think with impartiality and a kind of objective, vast perspective on life, you know, that life and death are both happening all at once and, and are kind of aspects of each other, and that the dragon would be a sort of serenity about watching everything rise and fall. And also, in some sense, the, you know, the way that when you're in a moment of peace and or perhaps you're out hiking or you're in the ocean and you look around, you see the beauty in each individual thing. And so that kind of consciousness would be a spacious sort of slightly voluptuous awareness of things and how everything is beautiful. So that would be a sort of dragon kind of impartial consciousness and something that is coming out of eternity but is still pretty close to eternity. It's not very far away from eternity, like Rilke's poems perhaps, but not so much like Neruda's poems. And is there any Rilke poem that um, strikes you at this point? Uh, yeah, the Ninth Elegy probably about um, you could take many different forms in life but here you are just appearing as a person. You, you could be a a laurel leaf or you could be many things, a tree or a giraffe, but here you are as a, as a human being, that sense of that there are many possibilities and they're all expressions of eternity. Chinese dragons symbolise powerful yet positive energy in the landscape, in the society and spiritually. So why do myths of European dragons portray them as fire-breathing, scaly creatures that live in caves full of treasure and only venture out to terrorise and kill local townsfolk. How have they come to represent evil? And why do they appear in the Bible and the stories of the Christian saints? Dr Carol Cusack, Associate Professor in the Studies of Religion at the University of Sydney. It's generally understood that some of the monstrous beings that people for example, Mesopotamian mythology, were dragon-like in form. And certainly, the Old Testament preserves the memory of pre-Israelite religion dragon beings, the most famous of whom is the Leviathan, who is spoken of in the Bible. And certainly, ancient Greece has dragon or serpent-like beings in its mythological sources. And these are much older, for example, than some of the other European mythologies that might mention dragons. So these date from somewhere between 700 and 800 BCE, and they speak of figures like Typhon, who is a dragon-like being, who occupies the site of the Oracle of Delphi until the god Apollo comes there and slays him and takes the site over for the gods to be a place of positive, future-oriented oracle telling. And they reflect the fact that in Indo-European mythology, of which Greek and Roman and Vedic Indian and then the later Germanic and Celtic mythologies all form part of an interrelated family. There is one really major myth in Vedic Indian mythology where the god Indra defeats a dragon who's called Vritra. And this is a really cosmically significant myth. If Vritra, the dragon, gets to win, basically order is destroyed, the cosmos is destabilised and Indra acts as the preserver and defender of the gods. And so when we see Apollo 
defeating Typhon in Greek mythology, it's taken to be a reflex of the same kind of idea that the dragon represents not exactly evil, it's wrong to ascribe a moral dimension to it, but at least cosmic disorder, the forces of chaos. And this actually might link with the ancient Near Eastern material as well, connecting dragons like the biblical Leviathan with the oceans and the kind of chaotic waters out of which creation emerges. Stephen Grudanis is a film critic for the National Catholic Register and the creator of DecentFilms.com. He's speaking to me from his home in Newark, New Jersey. The dragon or serpent is, of course, I think an overwhelmingly important symbol in Judeo-Christian culture. It's overwhelmingly a symbol of evil. That's not universal to all cultures and, and religions, but in Christianity, dragons are very much seen as symbols of evil. This is rooted in biblical literature. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the story of the fall of man when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. And in the last book of the Christian Bible, the book of Revelation, that serpent is identified with the great dragon, which is identified with Satan or, or Lucifer, the tempter. So dragons have been portrayed in Christian iconography, reflecting that biblical heritage, and it's a very important part of Christian iconography. Are there any biblical stories that don't portray dragons as evil? We do see more positive references and diverse references to dragons uh, in the Bible. There is a psalm, uh, Psalm 148, that says, "'Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons, and all ye deeps.'" And Isaiah chapter 43, the prophet writes, "'The beasts of the field shall honor me "'and the dragons and the owls.'" So we see that there are, are sometimes mixed references. It's the same thing with serpents. The serpent can be the devil, but Jesus tells us in the gospels to be wise as serpents. And he doesn't mean be like the devil. What is the blue dragon's cave in Zen Buddhist mythology? There's a great old teacher called Yuan Wu was his name. I'm actually translating some of his work at the moment. And he wrote a famous book called The Blue Cliff Record because it was written at a beautiful place in the mountains called The Blue Cliff. And it was a collection of koans, you know, sayings, healing stories, questions, really mythological situations that you have to live your way into. And he said, how many times have I gone down to the Blue Dragon's Cave for you? And it's just one of those enigmatic poetic sayings and... Um, he means how many times have I entered the world to try and teach you? How many times have I risked sorrow and joy and life and death to teach? And so the Blue Dragon's Cave is a place where things happen, where you do things, as opposed to the sort of place of where nothing happens, where everything's at peace already. And the Cohen's capping verse is, um, the cave of the Blue Dragon is ominous. Only the fearless dare to enter. So how does one advance into the cave of the blue dragon with that fearlessness? Well, I think, you know how when sometimes you fall asleep and then you wake up and you haven't quite assembled your consciousness yet, you know, you don't know who you are, you don't know that you're important yet, you don't even know what gender you are. And most people have had some experience like that. Kids have it a lot, but it's like before you've assembled a personality that's brave or frightened or before you've sort of narrowed yourself by deciding quite who you are. The most famous dragons of the Middle Ages, in a Christian sense, are the dragon that is vanquished by St George, the patron saint of Greece, but also perhaps the dragon Satan, who is vanquished by St Michael the Archangel and who so often is depicted trampling on the body of Satan in a scaly serpent form. They are very specifically operating within a Christian framework and St George's dragon slaying is a very typical heroic male saint vanquishing evil, vanquishing enemy of humanity. The saint stands in for the God as the hero of the community who preserves the community and makes its boundaries safe for its members by slaying the threat, the enemy that comes from outside. 
There's plenty and to spare. Oh, thank you. Oh, Smug the Magnificent. I did not come for presents. I only wish to have a look at you and see if you are truly as great as tales say. I did not believe them. Do you now? They fall utterly short of reality. Oh, Smug, the chiefest and greatest of calamities. An animated film version of Bilbo Baggins' encounter with Smog, the dragon. Peter Jackson's interpretation of Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit, will be in cinemas later this year. A whole range of mythical creatures like the dragon and the unicorn appear in books, computer games and films today. So what do they symbolise? And as symbols, have they lost their potency? Stephen Gradanis is a film critic, and his rating system includes a category that assesses the moral and spiritual content of films. So what's his take on the Harry Potter films that have been criticised by some Christian thinkers? Well, the Harry Potter stories have been a flashpoint of Christian controversy, not so much, I think, because of the portrayal of dragons and unicorns, all the dragons and unicorns are in them, as because of the positive depiction of magic and witchcraft. And here, I think the fear of the Harry Potter skeptics is that the Harry Potter stories are going to be a gateway drug to the occult. And that would be the view of someone like, say, the Catholic writer Michael O'Brien. On the other side, you have the Eastern Orthodox writer John Granger, who takes a much more positive view. And he emphasizes things like the way that unicorns are uh, portrayed in Christian iconography, that the unicorn is a, is a symbol of Christ. The dragons in Harry Potter, the, the dragon that I think of first of all is the one from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. It's, it's an evil dragon. It's a destroyer. Uh, Harry has to fight it. And so that's actually a pretty traditional Christian dragon. But of course, there are other aspects of the way that the Harry Potter stories use magic that aren't so traditional. The idea of a symbol that only means one thing is, I think, a tremendously mistaken idea because the most important thing about symbols is that they are able to be received, they're able to be understood by very varied groups of people and over long periods of time when different social conditions apply. And so when you think about a symbol like a dragon, the first thing to think about is whether it derives in some sense from something in the natural world that people have observed. And obviously the identification of Satan with the serpent, serpents are real, there, there are such things, people have experienced them. The kind of scaly, cosmically chaotic extraordinarily powerful being like Vritra, the dragon that is slain by the Indian god Indra, that being doesn't exist in the real world. And so it becomes an interesting question about where what we might call imaginary animals or monstrous creatures have come from. I think that there's a both and to symbols. On the one hand, certainly symbols are mutable. Symbols can be polyvalent. They can represent different things. Even sacred symbols, even scriptural symbols for Christians can bear more than one symbolic meaning. Uh, in the New Testament, the figure of a lion is used for Jesus, but it's also used for the devil. And yeah, at the same time, symbols aren't necessarily sheerly arbitrary. For instance, in the case of the lion, whether it's the devil or Jesus, either way, the lion represents strength. And so there's a reason why the lion is a symbol for Jesus or for the devil and, and not, say, a bunny rabbit. So there's an aspect that I think is rooted in the nature of things. And then there's a cultural overlay that can take symbols in different directions. So I think that there is a possibility of symbols ultimately becoming emptied of their meaning by the possibility of meaning too many things. 
Now, the recent film, How to Train Your Dragon, it's now a, a stage show here in Australia. Some of the dragons in this story are, are misunderstood, kindly creatures, not the evil ones. So some Christian writers, like Michael O'Brien, are saying that this is a, a reversal of the meaning of this symbol and it's deeply confusing and disturbing for children. Do you agree? I don't completely agree with Michael O'Brien, but I don't completely disagree either. I think that he has a point. I don't think that many children are likely to be disturbed or confused by it, but I would say this. I think children who grow up only knowing friendly, domesticated monsters are impoverished, that that there is a place in their imagination that ought to be colonized by things that are truly ferocious and fierce and want to kill you and eat you. And when adults try to shield them from that kind of thing, I think it tends to backfire more often than not. Uh, you know, the dragon, it, monsters are are powerful symbols of evil and of the destructive power of evil. And there is evil in the world. You know, there's evil in our hearts. There's evil in other people's hearts. Christians traditionally believe that there is a hidden world of unseen evil. Monsters are a powerful symbol for all of that. And I would not want to see children growing up in a world in which the only dragons were friendly dragons. Now, even in How to Train Your Dragon, we have an example of a fearsome, terrifying, and uh, very monstrous dragon at the very end of the story. And fortunately, I think we see a lot of other examples of that in family films and in other films generally. So I don't think that the scary dragons are quite an endangered species yet. Are the symbols for good and evil important in Zen? Uh, are there any symbols, images? Of well, you have sort of hell states and things like that. I mean, the, you know, there's one of the great canonical... There's lots of versions of the story, but, you know, the, there's the Zen master and the, the soldier, and the soldier comes in and says, teach me about heaven and hell, and Zen master says, well, you're a soldier, you wouldn't get it. And uh, so he says, no, no, I'm really serious. You know, tell me, no, no, I can just tell. Look, you're kind of useless. <laughs> you never understand. And the soldier sort of gets a little twitchy, and he's wearing a sword, and he starts fingering his sword, and... and uh, and the cinema says, I can tell you're stupid just by looking at you. <laughs> you'd, never, you'd never, you're just hopeless, you're doomed, you know. And the guy starts to draw his sword and then the Zen teacher says, oh, this is hell. And the soldier experiences it. In other words, it's a mind state, it's an experience that you have and everybody recognises that state. So I suppose the big thing with, with Zen would be it's not something to believe, it's something to experience. And once you experience what hell is, you, you don't have to say don't be in hell because you find it kind of unpleasant if you're noticing it, so you don't want to be. So you put your sword back or whatever you do. On RN, you're listening to an encounter about mythical creatures that still inhabit our cultural and religious stories. What about unicorns symbolising goodness and purity? Where does that myth come from? Dr. Carol Cusack again. Medieval attitudes to unicorns are ambivalent, and this goes back to this issue about whether a symbol can be positive or negative. Most people who know about medieval attitudes to unicorns know the magnificent set of six tapestries that are in the Musée de Cluny in Paris called The Lady and the Unicorn. And these contain typical medieval motifs. Uh, beautifully, sumptuously dressed lady, her maidservant, musical instruments, many animals, forest settings, and the myth that underlies that is the idea that the wild unicorn, which is generally not tame, is not able to be tamed, will nevertheless place its head in the lap of a virgin if approached peacefully. But of course, there is another set of very famous medieval tapestries which are known as the Hunting the Unicorn tapestries and they portray the unicorn dying violently at the hands of hunters which would suggest that at least in some parts of the Middle Ages medieval social worldview, the idea about these monsters that didn't fit the pattern of the natural, normal, God-ordained world were somehow perceived to be threatening, even if, in general, the unicorns 
characteristics were seen to be positive. What's your Christian understanding of the unicorn? In Christian medieval thought, the unicorn is often identified as a symbol of Jesus Christ. And I think that that was the way that Christians approached a lot of powerful images in previous cultures and, and previous mythologies. The unicorn was conceived as a creature of perfect purity. It was small and humble on the one hand, but it was also powerful and indomitable on the other hand. The single horn was connected not necessarily terribly persuasively to the oneness of Christ and the Father by St. Ambrose. In particular, the power of over the unicorn of a virgin was connected with the relationship of Jesus Christ with the Blessed Virgin Mary and with her intercessory power with her son. Unicorns, I think, are a lot less common today than, than dragons in the movies. Uh, we see a lot of dragons, not so many unicorns. When we think about what the lady and the unicorn motif might mean in Christian terms, I think it's actually possible to say that it doesn't mean anything in Christian terms. People may be disappointed to think this, but the primary connotation of the unicorn placing its head in the lady's lap has to be sexual. The lady is a virgin, the unicorn has an enormous horn on the top of its head. He puts the enormous horn into her lap. I can imagine medieval people who liked very much ribald humour and who are frequent listeners to and enactors of bawdy stories would take that kind of meaning from it. There is a mythical beast in China which has one horn called the Lin, and that is usually translated into English as unicorn. It's said that Confucius dreamt of a unicorn, and this is quite often quoted, and it's taken to mean that the unicorn was very rare, very beautiful, and that the fact that Confucius dreamt of it meant that the time of great good fortune and, and peace and harmony was about to arrive. I think the unicorn is how you would approach life, in which you, you approach life instead of approaching life directly, you approach life the way you would approach a unicorn, which is indirectly. You can only find the unicorn if you're not looking for it. And I think the unicorn symbolizes that kind of elusive, rather beautiful quality in life that that only reveals itself when you're not striving or greedy or, or things like that. We could call it happiness. And often it's shown as hidden in the forest or hanging out by a fountain, or things like that. The Chinese had their own unicorn, and they had a great idea about the unicorn, which was that nobody really knows what a unicorn looks like, but everybody's sure they exist. And so it's a sort of like a question Borges might have asked, that you might be a unicorn. If I don't know quite what one looks like, maybe it's you. And I think that's a rather, rather nice, amusing idea that's, that's kind of true in a way that whatever we're longing for or looking for, it might be with us right now. So perhaps the unicorn symbolizes that. I had a fun experience once when I was uh, sitting down meditating and actually I was in New South Wales and um, in the country near Braidwood actually, out in a friend's land and was sort of rather lost in meditation and and I felt something on my leg and an echidna was licking my my ankle, you know, <laughs> licking the salt off my ankle. And there was something about it. I really wasn't looking for it and it came to me, you know, that I was really just my mind was just sort of free and clear. And I think often in life if you're really not looking for something, it might be given to you. Not really grabbing and because your grabbing gets in the way of, of your joy. They don't appear in the Bible, of course, but classical Greek geographers and what we would call early scientists, they don't really correspond exactly to scientists as we understand them, but 
They allude to beings that are like giant horses with single horns in their foreheads. And interestingly, they claim that these beings live in India. And this brings us to a very attractive element of map making in the ancient and the medieval world, which is the idea that when your real geographical knowledge has run out, it's quite common to see a little dragon drawn on a map with even the legend, here be dragons, which means it's really perilous there. We don't know exactly what's going on there. You wouldn't want to go there, really. It's a long, long way away, and you never know what you're going to run into. And I think India, as an origin point for unicorns, India had something of that kind of reputation amongst Greeks. Some people did go there, of course. We know historically Alexander the Great took an entire army there. But it is doubtful whether they gained any great intimacy of knowledge with the culture and whether it still didn't remain simply a place of unutterable foreignness where such creatures as unicorns and dragons might be found even if nobody actually ever saw them. So if you wanted to neutralise symbols and say they don't always mean good, they don't always mean evil, you could say firstly dragons and unicorns signify exoticism, places where people have left behind their comfort zone, the familiar, and they're trying to come to terms with something enormously alien. And what about the map that we have of life? And the unicorn inhabits a it's territory that's yeah, that's off the map. Mm. Yeah. We spend a lot of time manufacturing an idea of who we are and then trying to act coherently around that or trying to explain ourselves really coherently with regard to that. And that actually most of our maps, by definition a map is not reality and by definition reality is more complex and more interesting than a map and so another name for the map is a kind of bias or prejudice that we have. And so I think one of the things a good Cohen practice does, or meditation practice of maybe other kinds, I don't know. I don't know about Cohen's. One of the things it does is it it doesn't really destroy our maps, but it gives us more space around things and the gears disengage. And so we can start maybe operating before we made our map of things. So you can step out of your maps and off your maps. And in fact, anytime you're having a good time, there's an element of surprise in it. The idea that somehow mythological creatures represent something in our lives, the eruption of surprise and the inconceivable into our lives, I, I like that idea. At the edge of ancient maps, dragons were drawn to indicate uncharted waters. So what about mystery, the unknown and the unknowable, for you as a Christian? Is it a mythic creature? We're all finite creatures. Whether we're, we're religious or not, we have limits in our ability to understand the world and we have limits in what we can know. And religion, whether it's man-made religion or religion that's given by God, is a way in part of grappling with things that are beyond human understanding, um, why we are the way that we are, what happens when we die. Dragons are a way of grappling with the mystery of evil and, and why bad things happen and why bad things happen to good people and how there can be evil if God is all good and God is all loving and God is all powerful. I think that the inscrutability of dragons, our inability to really understand them and figure out what's going on in their heads, speaks to the mystery of evil. I think that uh, not only befriending dragons and taming them, but even ultimately understanding them would be to diminish them. I think at the end of the day, there's some value in the fact that you don't really understand a dragon. You just know that you have to get away from it or fight it. The descendants of those medieval map makers in Europe 
conquered their fear of the unknown and travelled south to our ancient continent. Many ideas related to dragons have been brought here from the Northern Hemisphere, like feng shui. So how do we apply it to our own conditions? Dr Michael Patton. Feng shui being a Northern Hemisphere science in inverted commas, so art science, we really have to think about here in relation to it. We can't think above our surroundings. We need to fit in with the surroundings that we are in and work with it. So we have to look to the north for the sun. In fact, all the interestingly, all the Taoist Chinese temples built in Australia faced the south for a long time until a temple was built in Glebe, which faced north. Suddenly they realised that we have to understand our own geography. In feng shui, for instance, it says that if you have lots and lots and lots of trees, you have a really fertile place. Now, Australia has lots and lots and lots of trees, but it's really infertile. It's actually a desert that doesn't look like a desert. But in, in terms of actually reading the land, and you have to be really careful with it, like one text that I've translated, The 24 Difficult Problems, you spend three years looking for an area, and then you spend 10 years looking around that area for the, a particular place. So really close empiricism. But besides that, a place has to have a really good rationality to it, but it also has to have feeling. So there's this idea that a place can have a perfect structure, but if it doesn't have feeling, and they literally use in the traditional text, qing, your qing, having feeling, if it doesn't have feeling, it's no good. What we can learn from this whole idea of the dragon is to think about a humanistic type science in the sense of, you know, put our rationality, but remember that our spirit emotion fits in with that. And that early feng shui tells us that. If, as Jocelyn Chase said earlier, the spirit of the dragon is linked with the land and a harmonious society, then do Chinese people worry that their dragons are unhappy? In China today, if you were to ask people what is their major concern, most of them would list corruption. There are examples at the top level, and there are also many, many examples of corruption by local officials that affect people living in villages. People, for instance, who lose their homes and their fields because the local officials have done a deal with some entrepreneur to give that land away for development. And are they concerned that that relationship between the natural world and society, that'll be upset and the natural world will react? Certainly there's also a growing environmental lobby in China. But I think most people have lost their connection with traditional ways. You have to remind them. China has been through so many decades of unprecedented unhappiness, of um, social upheaval, of civil war, of disasters of one kind or another, and a period when people were forbidden to practice any of their traditional, for instance, sacrificial rites to ancestors, you know, tending their family graves. So the local culture was destroyed. And there's a kind of a spiritual hunger amongst people there, but it's a very inchoate, unexpressed and difficult to define kind of a, of a spiritual hunger. I don't think people can really give voice to it properly. They're, they're on a spiritual journey, certainly. They're searching for answers, but I don't think they have generally found the answers. Symbolic interpretation is reliant on what cultural framework is used. So how do Chinese Christians, filmmakers from around the globe, or a Western Zen teacher cross cultural boundaries? John Tarrant from the Pacific Zen Institute in Santa Rosa, California. I went through a relatively Asian training and um, one of my assessments was that I couldn't, after teaching in a fairly classical way, I couldn't keep doing that because um, the time for that had passed. Whatever the great Chinese masters had learned was a real thing, but putting it in Japanese medieval forms for me wasn't doing it, and I didn't think it was something that would endure, so 
my big interest was to have people look inside their hearts and find what rises to meet that kind of learning. What's it like if you take the journey yourself and find what in your own life rises to meet the meditation tradition? It's not like, how can you be an ancient Chinese person? How can you be fully the person you are? And what in your life might transform when it meets the, the ancient tradition? So by definition, it's a kind of conversation. You know, I think all great spiritual traditions have some kind of conversation with different elements. With the Zen koans, I have a project of finding Western stories and, in one case, an Aboriginal story that can be used as koans quite successfully and have the same effect the old Chinese stories had on people when they meditate with them. I was brought up as a Christian in the Anglican Church and the experience of living and working in China in some senses hasn't changed my own religious belief. But one of the things which I think has impacted me perhaps more than others is the kind of Taoist belief that the universe is one. The ancient text starts by saying, in the beginning was the great unity, and then the one divided into two and the two divided into the myriad things that exist. So the whole universe has both a unity and a diversity within it. And that what we do as human beings, how we treat each other, doesn't just impact on our human society, but also on the natural world. And that we should be working towards not only the restitution of our own souls and our society, but to returning the natural universe to the balance and beauty in which it was created. These days, when more and more Chinese people are coming to Australia, we also find that there is a growing number who are coming to churches in Australia. For those people who come to Christianity from a non-European background, you know, our gospels and our liturgical practices carry an awful lot of cultural baggage with them, which I think we don't realize how hard it is sometimes for people from outside our culture to understand. These are all new things for many people from Asia. And a lot of time is spent in Chinese churches simply teaching what the gospel stories mean and explaining the, the significance of the background. Are you finding there are films that convey mythical stories of our times that are blending cultural stories and religious symbols? Yeah, it's definitely true that different streams of cultural influences can be blended in the same story. And that's definitely the case in the world of film, where you might have a Western novel that's interpreted by an Eastern filmmaker or an Eastern myth that is filmed by a Hollywood studio. And that kind of mixing of one thing with another can leave you in some interpretive doubt as to how to take the symbol. Should I see this through a Western matrix or an Eastern one? If there are mythical creatures all around, what do you do if you encounter one? What do I do when I face a dragon in spiritual terms? I try to do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Instead of hiding and being absent the way that Adam was, or debating with a serpent and trying to answer him tit for tat, I try to turn to God. I acknowledge my smallness. I acknowledge my inability to deal adequately with the evil, and I place myself under his protection, and I trust in his grace. Why doesn't everyone see unicorns if they're there to be seen? I mean, if you see one, is there more chance that you could see others? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you see one unicorn, of course you'll see more, you know, because you're looking at something and not realising it's a unicorn. You're looking at your best friend and you don't realise she's a unicorn. And then you notice and then 
Maybe you'll see your friend differently, or maybe you'll see your kid differently, or maybe your enemy. <laughs> Did you have trouble yeah. seeing your first unicorn? I noticed that I was separated from life in certain ways. You know, I would, um, you know, I was one of those young people who was really busy and had a busy mind. You know, I'd be looking out over a river or over the ocean and be busy making comments and describing it or writing poems about it or writing letters home about it rather than being there with it. And um, when I noticed this, I noticed that it was unfulfilling and, you know, it's that whole thing about eating a picture of a loaf of bread. And so I wanted to cross over, and I think that would be unicorn's territory, I wanted to cross over into real life. And for me, in a way, I didn't know how to cross over, I didn't know how to be present. And the, the trick is, you know, really simple, of to stop judging one's consciousness and stop assessing one's consciousness. It's the easiest thing in the world to be present and see the unicorn, but until you notice that and try it, then you're always grasping and reaching, and the unicorn always seems hard to find. Unicorns are said to be shy creatures. Have you ever encountered one? <laughs> I think it's safe to say that goodness and beauty in the world are as elusive as unicorns are in fantasies. You know, in order to approach a unicorn or have a unicorn approach you in the real world, you have to be pure, you have to be a virgin. I'm probably not pure enough to have had many encounters with unicorns, but there are moments in my life when I think I've been privileged with a visitation of grace and beauty. That brings us to the end of this encounter. My thanks to all the dragons and unicorns that helped with this program. Jocelyn Che, John Tarrant, Stephen Gradanis, Carol Cusack and Michael Patton. Readings about dragons were from Francois Julien's book The Propensity of Things and they were read by Andrew McLennan. Technical production today was by Phil McKellar and Judy Rapley. For more information or to make a comment about this program, go to the RN website and click on Encounter or you can talk to us on Twitter. I'm Kerry Stewart. It's been good to have your company.